Welcome to the On Medical Grounds podcast. I'm Jill Sellers, your host. On Medical Grounds is a casual, friendly place where you can find an authentic, audible blend of timely, scientific, and medical knowledge. We talk with experts about their experiences and knowledge, the utilization of new therapies, and challenges within the world of healthcare. Select podcasts offer continuing medical education credits for those of you needing an additional why you should listen. We provide perks to all posted podcasts by linking content so you can drink in more if you so choose. Our guest today is Dr. Biff Palmer. Dr. Palmer is Distinguished Teaching Professor of Internal Medicine at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. He received his medical degree from UT Southwestern Medical School, completed a residency in internal medicine and a research fellowship in the Department of Nephrology at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and a clinical fellowship in the Division of Nephrology at UT Southwestern Medical Center, Parkland Memorial Hospital. Dr. Palmer is board certified in internal medicine and nephrology. I will provide a link to his full bio in the show notes. Welcome, Dr. Palmer. Well, I'm very happy to be here, and I thank you for this opportunity. Well, I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, You and I have actually worked on a previous medical education project for the European Society of Cardiology meeting in Barcelona, Spain. And I'm not sure if you remember, but I remember dining with you at the Atapas restaurant and learning about your mountain climbing adventures. And for our listeners, Dr. Palmer is a member of the Seven Summits Club, and he has a TED Talk that I will also link to in the show notes that I highly recommend you watch. It is excellent. And for those of you who may not know what the Seven Summits Club is about, I'll let Dr. Palmer explain it and how he got into mountain climbing. Well, thank you for sharing that experience. Yes, so the Seven Summits are considered to be the tallest mountains on each of the continents, and I was very fortunate to be able to climb these The way I got interested in it is really somewhat, I guess, unusual. I really never got started into climbing until I was in my mid-40s, and I just really became kind of fascinated with these documentaries like on National Geographic or the Discovery Channel about these expeditions, and I just thought it'd be interesting to try it. And as I really detail in some of those lectures that you mentioned, like the TED Talk, my initial foray was quite disappointing. And I tell the story about how I basically tried to get into shape and then ultimately was able to have uh, successful uh, summits of each of those uh, mountains. So I appreciate you telling the audience about that project. Well, it's quite an accomplishment. And I don't know how many people have done that. Oh, you know, no, I don't have an exact number. I mean, more and more people are doing it. But it's still a pretty exclusive club, I'd like, at least I'd right. like to think. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I imagine through all this mountain climbing that your nutrition and hydration is extremely important, especially during a multi-day climb. And speaking of hydration, and let's jump into our discussion on hyponatremia. And so for purposes of laying the foundation for this podcast, I'd like you to describe for our listeners hyponatremia and how it is diagnosed. Sure. Hyponatremia, or a low serum sodium concentration, is really one of the most common electrolyte disturbances that uh, clinicians 
find either in the outpatient or the inpatient setting. And what hyponatremia really represents in virtually all cases is that relative to the, to the total body sodium content, there's an increase in total body water. And uh, that's actually somewhat of a hard thing to bring about because your normal functioning kidney has a tremendous capacity to get rid of excess water. And so for hyponatremia to develop, there has to really be some impairment in your kidney's ability to excrete uh, ingested water. So it's not necessarily an intake issue. It's more of a organ function issue. Well, you, in order for it to develop, there certainly has to be water added to the body. But the point is, under most circumstances, your kidney will be able to recognize that water intake and quickly reestablish water balance within the body. But uh, there are circumstances, uh, particularly those circumstances that cause an increase in the uh, blood level of vasopressin that in turn leads to a defect, if you will, or an impairment in the normal kidney's ability to excrete water. Is hyponatremia something that is commonly overlooked by healthcare providers? Well, it's actually a, a fairly common diagnosis and actually an easy one to make because the basic metabolic profile, which is a uh, chemistry test that virtually all clinicians order, whether you're in a primary care setting or a subspecialty setting, it encompasses all the electrolytes. And so where hyponatremia is discovered is oftentimes just on a routine uh, basic metabolic profile test. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think, though, where clinicians have difficulty is when it's discovered what exactly should you do and what are the considerations. To be sure, there may be some individuals who have some old mild symptoms and even nonspecific symptoms, things like uh, a headache or just not feeling well, fatigue, what have you, that you get a basic metabolic profile and all of a sudden you discover hyponatremia. So I think it's, a, it's an easy diagnosis to make because the test that we order is quite common. I think where clinicians, though, find a great deal of difficulty is how best to approach it. Okay. So when does one decide to treat hyponatremia, and then are there specific patient types that are more prone to it? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, in general, like I say, hyponatremia represents a state where there's increase in circulating vasopressin. And I think what the clinicians and the audience needs to remember is that there's really only two things or two categories in which vasopressin becomes higher than normal. Perhaps the most common one is when there's some circulatory disturbance. And what I mean by that is an underfilling in the circulation. And when that occurs, pressure sensing mechanisms that are widely distributed through the body sense that underfilling, and that then mediates the release of vasopressin. That's mm -hmm. one main category. The other okay. category, though, is where vasopressin is high within the blood, but yet the circulation of the body is absolutely normal. And when that occurs, we usually use the term syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion. Again, that's kind of a, a broad term, but it is meant to encompass patients who may be on some centrally acting drug that's causing its stimulation of, of its release. Uh, it may be people who have a tumor that is autonomously secreting vasopressin. But the point is the SIDH patients have an absolutely normal circulation. So the, the two main categories, circulatory underfilling or a normal circulation where the secretion is more autonomous. Okay. And then in treating it, then how do you decide when to treat it? 
the treatment, again, I think for everybody who has a low sodium, you first of all need to discover why it has come about, and then to the best that you can, try to remove the underlying cause. So I think an attempt should be made to treat all individuals if you are able to. I mean, there are some certain conditions where, for example, you can't really remove the underlying cause. Some of the maneuvers then that one would employ would be free water restriction, but I think most clinicians would agree that telling somebody to restrict free water intake has a very variable effect and is oftentimes difficult to enforce. If there's a problem in the circulation and you can correct that problem, for example, maximizing somebody who has impaired cardiac function or somebody who happens to be salt depleted administering saline, those are readily effective maneuvers that can be utilized. So I think it it is really patient-specific, but To summarize, it's very important to try to identify the cause of the hyponatremia and then whenever possible, institute the appropriate therapy. Which makes perfect sense to me, yeah. So how important would a proven day one response of serum sodium with intravenous conovaptin be in patients admitted to the ICU, and how would you administer it? Yeah, so conovaptin is a uh, drug that blocks the receptor in which vasopressin acts. That receptor is located in the terminal part of the uh, nephron. And uh, when vasopressin interacts with that receptor, it causes the insertion of water channels, and that then provides the mechanism for water reabsorption and the maintenance of hyponatremia. Conivaptam represents a receptor-blocking agent that sometimes people generically call VAPTAMs. And so what conivaptam does is that by blocking that receptor, no longer can vasopressin cause insertion of those water channels into that nephron segment, and therefore water will now be promptly excreted by the kidney, and the excess total body water will be corrected. Again, where we would tend to use this drug would be in individuals who have SIDH or people who have circulatory disturbances like heart failure or cirrhosis. In other words, circulatory disturbances that are not readily fixable by just simply giving somebody saline. And so the clinical trials with this particular drug have shown that it is very effective within a 24-hour period, and really within several hours, you start to see a demonstrable increase in your serum sodium concentration. And so, again, it's a, it is a very effective therapy, and it works as you phrase it even within the first 24 hours, and I would argue even within the first several hours of administration. Excellent. I mean, that's, that's very good because these are usually patients that need to have it working sooner rather than later. I mean, that's probably one of the ways this particular drug has changed the way hyponatremia is managed, or, or how has it? I mean, how has it changed how hyponatremia is managed? Well, I think it's been a a welcome addition to the armamentarium. When you, again, think about hyponatremia in an intensive care unit setting, these types of patients uh, almost by necessity are being given large quantities of various fluids because they require antibiotic therapy. They may require pressure support, for example. I mean, anytime you've visited an ICU, you will always note multiple intravenous infusions in the most common scenarios. And so you're really dealing then with a situation where water intake cannot be readily restricted because by necessity, you're having to give fluids to allow these medications to be administered. 
And so this, again, provides now a nice means to help correct that problem because by giving a drug that's limiting the kidney's ability to excrete that water load, you now can more effectively manage the excess water that oftentimes develops in these ICU individuals. Tell us about the challenges and successes of using conibaptin in your practice. Yeah, so the... Again, the, I've already kind of alluded to some of the successes, and what I have found, again, in the ICU setting is that these individuals who are given large amounts of uh, free water, we can now, through the use of this, an agent, really allow people to establish a more neutral water balance. In other words, not always be in positive water balance. The big challenge, of course, is that it is an intravenous medication, so it does require IV access. You can utilize a peripheral line. One of the well-known side effects of the drug, though, is it can cause a phlebitis, kind of an inflammation of the vein in which it's being infused into. And so on occasion, you have to rotate the sites because of this localized inflammatory change. This inflammation is thought to be actually due to the diluent that the active drug is uh, dissolved in. But nevertheless, it's a complication to be aware of, but uh, easily overcome. The other thing I would just mention is that in when using this drug, and frankly, in anybody with hyponatremia, you, you always have to monitor the patients closely to make sure that the rate at which you correct the hyponatremia is not excessive. In individuals in which hyponatremia has been present for 48 hours or less, we try to keep the amount of correction right in the range of 6 to 8 milliequivalents in any one 24-hour period because more rapid correction increases the risk of what has been called osmotic demyelinization. So that's one of the challenges that one has to keep in mind when using this or really any approach to treating a chronically hyponatremic subject. What advice would you give to colleagues who are considering the use of conibaptin? Well, again, I think it's uh, something that uh, we need to keep in mind that it's part of the armamentarium. When we utilize the drug, it's oftentimes and most commonly given as an initial bolus of 20 milligrams administered intravenously over a 30-minute period. And then you can follow that up with a continuous infusion of 20 milligrams over 24 hours for up to four days. The regimen that I just described was the way it was administered in the trials that ultimately led to the drug being approved. So again, 30-minute infusion, almost a loading dose, followed by a continuous infusion up to uh, four days. Now, having said that, interestingly, in post-marketing use of this drug, there have been well-described instances where people have simply given the loading dose, the 20 milligrams administered over 30 minutes, just on separate days. In other words, uh, titrate intermittent dosing according to the response that was achieved. You, you see this a lot in the neurosurgical literature. But again, it's somewhat of an off-label way, at least when you look at the uh, packaging for this particular product. Interesting. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. You know, we've gotten through, I think, what's the worst of the pandemic with COVID-19. And I'm just curious what or if you can tell us anything about the incidence of hyponatremia in COVID-19 patients. Yeah, that's obviously a very timely question. And there have now been numerous papers describing uh, the clinical experience with these individuals, particularly in the ICU, and again, supporting the idea that, first of all, hyponatremia is common, 
And it's quite likely common because, once again, these individuals are frequently given large quantities of IV fluids for the treatment of the virus itself, but also the various comorbidities that accompany the virus. So again, water intake is quite large in these individuals. The other thing to keep in mind is the COVID-19 infection is very much localized to the lung parenchyma. And it's well known that almost any kind of uh, infiltration into the interstices of the lung can lead to increased vasopressin release. So Again, just through these mechanisms, you can understand then why hyponatremia would be a common entity. In some of these papers, the hyponatremia in this particular setting has been associated with increased morbidity and mortality in these individuals. So again, I think it tells us that there is a need to be uh, cognizant for this electrolyte disturbance developing and also be somewhat aggressive in trying to not only prevent it, but actively treat it and again, this comes and fits in line with our discussion of the use of this particular VAPTAM, Conivaptam. So that was going to be my next question. <laughs> you know, what what is the procedure or protocol for treating these hyponatremic COVID-19 patients? Is it different? And and does Conivaptam have a place here? And, and is, it, is that different than how you would treat other hyponatremic patients, knowing that this is a lung infection and that it can increase the ADH and all the other things that come with that. Yeah, so I think it's very similar to really anybody who has hyponatremia. Again, I think that given the association, and it doesn't prove causality, don't get me wrong, but the association with worse outcomes, uh, higher amounts of morbidity, again, provide at least a justification for early treatment of the disorder. So again, if somebody started to drop their serum sodium to less than 135 and certainly down to 130, I would immediately begin to try to understand why is this developing? Are there any quick fixes? Is there some sort of an IV fluid that I could cut back on? I don't want to minimize that as an important aspect. One certainly has to look at the IV intake. And are there ways that one could limit the amount of free water intake? But again, you're oftentimes uh, hamstrung on how much water intake you can limit because of the necessity for the various medications to be administered. So again, this comes, I think, fits nicely into the use of these VAPTANs because we can now, by antagonizing the effect of the vasopressin at the level of the kidney, allow for increased water excretion by the kidney. I would point out that this drug and this whole class of agents, the VAPTANs, they're only going to work if you have really reasonably good kidney function. As people develop progressive acute kidney injury, which is certainly common in this infection, then the effectiveness of a VAPTAM is going to be much less. But as long as kidney function is reasonably well preserved, then the drug should work reasonably effective. And again, as I say, as a welcome armamentarium to our uh, therapeutic strategies. And have you treated COVID-19 patients who are hyponatremic who have poor kidney function? There's no specific toxicity of the drug when administered in somebody who has impaired kidney function, and there's no dose adjustment that needs to be utilized. But you do have to be prepared to see much less of a response. In other words, when the glomerular filtration rate is markedly reduced, let's say because of acute tubular necrosis interstitial nephritis or whatever may be the cause, vasopressin really is no longer an issue at that point. 
The hyponatremia is largely developing because the water intake is simply greater than the small amount of surface area that is left for filtration of fluids. Just to summarize, you don't need to adjust the dose. You just have to be prepared for a much less effectiveness as the glomerular filtration rate falls to, let's say, 30 mLs per minute and below. Can you comment on the utilization of conivaptan among your nephrologist colleagues and what has been the discussion over its use? And this doesn't necessarily have to be in COVID-19 patients. I'm just in, in general, you know, overall. Yeah. Well, again, I think many of my colleagues have started to embrace the use of the drug over the last several years. And again, perhaps this pandemic has really brought out the utilization. I I get the impression, at least, and I can't provide you any hard data, but I think the utilization of this drug has increased in the course of this pandemic because of the large burden imposed in ICU patients, where, again, as I say, you're faced with this dilemma. A lot of fluids coming in and overwhelming the kidney's ability to excrete it because the COVID-19 and all of the comorbidities are stimulating vasopressin. I say COVID-19 is stimulating. There's actually evidence that that cytokine storm that's been associated with this infection, particularly some of the interleukins, can actually centrally stimulate vasopressin release. So it's kind of an interesting uh, connection there. So yes, I think we've been utilizing the drug more and as I say, been finding reasonably good efficacy as long as the kidney function is reasonable, as I've previously commented on. So when the pandemic hit, how did that affect your practice? And are things getting back to normal now, or do you think it will be a while longer? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And there is absolutely no question, at least here in my uh, area where I live in Dallas, in the various teaching hospitals that I work at, the numbers of patients have clearly gone down, and the number of people who are admitted in the ICU is strikingly improved. So hopefully that will remain the case. I mean, it's concerning that, for example, we read about these uh, surges in countries like India and in Brazil, whether or not that's related to these variants, who knows. And uh, I do think we'll have to be vigilant to make sure that uh, we don't start to see that here in the United States. But certainly in my area of the country, uh, we're definitely on the proper end of the curve at this point. So, Dr. Palmer, before we close, what are some final thoughts that you'd like to reinforce with our listeners regarding hyponatremia and its treatment? Well, there's absolutely no question. I would say, number one, hyponatremia is arguably the most common electrolyte disturbance that one finds on a basic metabolic profile. And unfortunately, many uh, clinicians find it very intimidating, but I think you can make it much less intimidating if, number two, you realize that hyponatremia simply represents water intake in excess of what your kidney can excrete. The third main point is that when there is some evidence that your kidney is not excreting appropriately the water that has been administered, it generally means there's excess vasopressin. And the fourth point is that when vasopressin is high, there's really only two reasons for it to be elevated. One is that there's some derangement in the circulation such that the body is sensing there is underfilling. The second component is when the circulation is normal, but vasopressin is high, and we utilize the term SIDH, and we look for things that may be causing autonomous stimulation. A fifth point is that when we initiate or begin to think about treating the disorder, we obviously want to 
pay a great deal of attention to the rate at which it's being corrected. Again, in hyponatremia that's been present for more than 48 hours, you want to make sure that you don't raise the sodium by any more than 6 to 8 milliequivalents in any 24-hour period. Number six, I would say that the VAPTAM class, of which Connie VAPTAM is a member, again, this is a drug that binds to the V2 receptor in the distal part of the nephron and antagonizes and prevents vasopressin from causing water channel insertion. In this sense, the drug is very physiologic. It's a physiologic way to approach this defect in kidney water excretion. And the last point I'd like the audience to remember is that there's absolutely no question that I think conibaptam and the, the ability to block this V2 receptor is a tremendous uh, addition to our therapeutic armamentarium to treat this very common electrolyte disorder. Thank you. This has been excellent. Thank you, Dr. Palmer, for being part of the On Medical Grounds podcast and educating us on conibaptan and its important role in hyponatremia management. It has been great, so thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for having me, and it's been a true pleasure to talk about, about this subject that I think clinicians face every day on a clinical practice basis. And thank you for listening to the On Medical Grounds podcast. Instructions for processing your continuing medical education credits and the resources that were referred to in this podcast can be found at onmedicalgrounds.com. In addition, please be sure to click the subscribe button to be alerted when we post new content.